Gresham College presents A Single Global Financial Market by Avinash Persaud, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. In bull markets, all you ever really hear about are trends. I think critical to the addiction that drives investors to scramble for even more stock at the very top is the idea ever present in bull markets that the world is on the edge of some dramatic new trend. History always seems speeded up in these bull markets. Everywhere you're told, if you don't follow the latest trends, you might fall off. In the subsequent bear market, it's not surprising, therefore, that betrayed investors view talk of trends with much suspicion. But some trends do cut through the cycle of greed and fear that is markets. And one of them is the consolidation of financial markets in general and equity exchanges in particular. What I intend to do today is to examine this trend, its direction, its force, its consequences, good and bad. Although I wish to dwell on the bad and how policymakers may ameliorate some of these issues. We've been fortunate throughout this lecture series, those of you who've been here for the other lectures, have known that we have many experts in the audience, and I see uh, some of those uh, here today as well. And so my intention is to be fairly brief in laying out the key issues and the debate, uh, and to provide room for uh, an informal discussion uh, for drink when we have drinks later on. The world is littered with the corpses of dead stock exchanges. A hundred years ago, the UK had around 30 equity exchanges housed in splendid Victorian and Georgian buildings in cities like Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, and Glasgow. And the same trend of consolidation can be found in the US. You will find the ghosts of exchanges past in cities like Pittsburgh, New Orleans, Hartford. And though on a longer schedule, a similar trend is also in place in continental Europe. What has long happened within countries is now happening between countries. Companies are now looking abroad for more liquid foreign markets in order to list their shares. Borders are breaking down. This chart shows the cumulative number of new listings since 1938 on the London Stock Exchange by companies originally registered abroad. I must say at this point, uh, a thank you to Chris McCoy and Michael O'Sullivan, who's helped me with the data I'll be showing you tonight. It is quite clear that cross-border listing is a long and powerful trend in the major markets, and one that cuts across bull and bear markets. If anything, this trend has accelerated recently and into the 1990s. If the accumulation of liquidity on a few large markets killed off local exchanges in the last century, today it's undermining some national exchanges. Just 10 years ago, when the privatization wave was dancing across the world, when the Berlin Wall was tumbling down, new post-communist countries were being born. It seemed that national stock exchanges were regarded like national airlines, 
A country needed to have one to prove its autonomy, its sovereignty. National stock exchanges were opening up almost daily, like the Baku Stock Exchange in Azerbaijan or the reopening of the Warsaw Stock Exchange in Poland in 1991. Some of these exchanges have prospered, but a surprising number have founded. As major companies have listed on the LSC or the New York Stock Exchange, the NYSC, liquidity in many emerging markets has been hollowed out. This is not just the feature of the newest and smallest exchanges, established perhaps more as a result of aspiration than real demand. This picture shows the annual turnover since the mid-1990s of what was once one of the, or what was uh, one of the oldest and most advanced stock exchanges in Latin America, the Santiago Borsa in Chile. Remember that in developed markets, the trend of daily turnover was markedly different, with a period from 1997 to 2000 being boom years, not just for equity prices, but equity volumes too. This trend of liquidity collecting in the most liquid markets and draining from the less liquid has been helped by deregulation as restrictive practices are removed. Beyond cross-listings and ADRs, competitors of the traditional exchanges have been allowed to enter the market, and exchanges are invading each other's territories. At one time, you may recall, the NASDAQ looked like becoming some kind of international franchise with a JASDAQ in Japan and a COSDAQ in Korea and an ESDAQ here in Europe. It's hard to predict the pace of deregulation, somewhat most critical in the creation of Europe's single market, Sir Nigel mentioned earlier. But there are two other, perhaps more reliable forces driving the consolidation of exchanges, forces that will be there whether the political will for further deregulation is strong or not. And there are two. One is technological progress, and the second, the pursuit of liquidity by investors. Local exchanges first arose through the local information advantage of trading the shares of local companies or national companies of particular interest to local investors. The local dealers on the Pittsburgh exchange, say, but once the best informed about what was happening to the local steel companies in Pittsburgh. As a result, potential buyers and sellers of these stocks flocked uh, to this market, providing good liquidity. Local investors cut off from immediate price information, but also uh, trade national stocks amongst themselves. When technological changes made information more readily more extensively, more inexpensively available, these local information advantages eroded, even reversed, and the local exchanges withered away. It was said at the time, if you can believe it, that the reason why the Hartford Stock Exchange closed in 1935 was the advent of the new long-distance telephone service between New York City and Hartford. The NYSE, now the most dominant international exchange, and perhaps certainly the most dominant U.S. exchange, began uh, its dominance with the arrival of the NYSE ticker tape. 
This ticker tape allowed the ticker hounds, as they were called back then, like the mythical Larry Livingstone, to arbitrage between the prices of national companies listed on the New York market and any other exchange not yet moving in line with New York during the day. In the 1990s, a combination of the computer and information revolution, a more interconnected global economy, meant that information differences were even more ironed out. When information costs were large, investors went to where the companies were. Now that these costs have largely disappeared, companies go to where the investors are. And as differences in information have largely disappeared, investors have become more focused on placing their trades in the markets offer the lowest cost, the most efficient execution and settlement. This tended to be the larger markets, which made them larger still. Liquidity begets liquidity. The evidence is that consolidation has been a long, steady, powerful trend going back over 100 years. It is driven in part by deregulation, the pace of which is uncertain, but also by forces that are very much with us today. Technological progress, which is bringing down information costs, and investors search for liquid markets with cheap and efficient execution. One reasonable possibility is that this consolidation will continue apace until we are left with just one exchange, open across all time zones, a single global financial market. I'm not saying that this is inevitable or that it will happen imminently, but that this possibility is sufficiently real, sufficiently strong, that we need to consider the consequences. And these are wide-ranging and significant. The first observation relates to international political economy. The listing requirements of a single global exchange would become pervasive. Let us imagine that in five years' time, the NYSC, the New York Stock Exchange, is the global exchange where the world's largest companies are listed and trade 24 hours a day. And let us further imagine that the financial shenanigans at Enron and WorldCom had not yet come to light. Then the world would be using U.S. generally accepted accounting principles. Even if a company were not listed on this exchange, if it had aspirations to do so, it would have to adopt U.S. GAAP. Even if a company had no aspirations to list, convergence to these requirements would allow international lenders and private equity investors to more easily compare companies, and as a result, there will be financial rewards to those who adopt these conventions and financial penalties for those who don't. In the light of Enron and WorldCom and others, U.S. corporate governance in general will be improved. The U.S. approach may come to resemble more closely our own in the UK. But one dominant market will mean a monopoly of its standards. And even if these start off being the best available, the current room for competition between different forms of exchange, different forms of capitalism, would be marginalized. And it's this competition, remember, that ensures standards are continuously improving. Furthermore, accounting standards and corporate governance 
They're not global absolutes with a right and wrong approach. They reflect different historical, cultural, legal backgrounds. They may put some companies and economies at a disadvantage if they have to adopt a global approach that is literally foreign to their own experiences. This point is most directed at the European Union. This is what is at stake. This is what is at stake if they delay the progress towards a more harmonized European financial market. The likelihood that a single global financial market arrives and is based in the US around standards that may be alien to the historical, cultural, and legal background of European business. There was a certain amount, I wonder if you remember, back in July, of schadenfreude in France on the resignation of the Vivendi Universal boss, Jean-Marie Messier. It was July last year. And this was partly because Mr. Messier appeared to many to turn Vivendi, a French national champion, into an American company. And as you know, there are few worse sins in France. But the reality is that this had far more to do with the dictates of where the market for risk capital was and what this market demanded of Vivendi than Mr. Messier's personal patriotism. Well, I believe this political economy point is valid and important. I don't want to overplay it. There are clear benefits to having a global standard. It may be that Europe is ill-served by its current corporate governance traditions. Elsewhere, there are certainly many countries where corporate standards are not perceived to be sufficiently tough or where enforcement is lacking. A single global financial market would set free some successful companies from being held back by adverse country factors. These need not be a failing government or scandal-riddled market, but perhaps uncertainty about currency movements or settlement arrangements in the local market, or just an adverse reputation based perhaps on some past long since departed. The reputation and access to capital of Infosys, the Bangalore-based software company, one of the world's largest, is substantially greater as a result of its NASDAQ listing than if it were only listed on the Bombay Stock Exchange. A single global financial market would introduce a degree of rigidity in standards that may be negative for those companies in countries already blessed with credible local standards, but it would be significantly positive for those in countries still lacking this credibility. One partial measure of the way cross-listings divorce um, Crosslings lead to a divorce from local factors is in this chart here. Here we look at the correlation between share price movements of the New York Stock Exchange, the NYSE, and the LSE, the blue line. The higher green line is a correlation between share movements in the US market and UK companies listed on the NYSE. These companies are more correlated, these UK companies are more correlated with the US market than they are with the UK market. I've used UK companies in this correlation analysis because there's a large enough sample for this marked difference in the correlation to be statistically significant. However, the point is more relevant for those companies not just looking for better access to investors, but partly seeking to divorce themselves from local factors. Large 
international companies based in South Africa, South Korea, Poland, India, appear to feature particularly often in the cross-listings of the LSE, for example. Perhaps the greatest potential concern arising from a single global financial market is what happens to companies that are not on it. If the big Polish companies, say, adopt global standards and leave the Warsaw Stock Exchange for New York, and as a result, tap into greater liquidity, that's unambiguously a positive development for those Polish companies. So much so that national regulators should encourage this process by adopting local regulation that's complementary to the foreign listing requirements of the global exchange. But those Polish companies too small to list globally would be left with an illiquid exchange. Remember, a global listing has many costs, direct costs, annual listing fees, but also indirect costs to meet the other requirements, such as audits and disclosures. This is significant because, remember, it is the small companies that provide the greatest proportion of growth in employment and output in an economy. And Modigliani-Miller aside, the most appropriate form of finance available for many of these small companies, many with unproven ventures, with no or small current revenues, is equity finance. These companies may be forced to turn to alternative forms of finance, just as Basel II, in its current form at least, makes this more expensive by increasing the regulatory costs for banks that lend to small enterprises in developing countries. One of the odd things about political economy today for me is that while governments struggle struggle hard to influence the economies within increasingly narrow margins of policy flexibility, constrained by sometimes self-imposed rules on monetary policy or fiscal rules. Whilst they struggle to influence the economies within these rules, they've abandoned the highly significant era of economic policy to the private companies that run national exchanges. Getting the right corporate governance Developing liquid equity markets that are good at providing risk capital to small and medium enterprises is critical, one of the most critical things to economic vitality today. And yet most governments have given themselves little formal influence in this area. And where they do exert influence, via independent regulatory bodies, these bodies tend to be focused on far more narrow objectives. Let me end by making two radical proposals that will get me into no end of trouble with many of my friends here today. View them charitably, please, as devices to shift the debate along. The first relates to supporting liquidity in local markets, bereft of size because large companies have moved their listings abroad. I've been fortunate in recent years to have studied the general patterns in State Street's portfolio holdings database. Following the purchase of Deutsche Bank's custody business, this is now the largest such database in the world, with about 20% of all of the world's tradable securities. And one of the many interesting things I've learned is that liquidity is not about size. It's about diversity. Imagine there's a market with just two people, say Sir Nigel and I. 
And whenever Sir Nigel wants to buy, I want to sell, and vice versa. That will be a small but highly liquid market, easy and cheap to trade in. Now, imagine we get bored with this parochial bliss, and we go off to a bigger market with 10,000 traders sharing the same information and using the same risk management techniques, and then whenever we want to buy, so do they. So do the other 10,000. Then the price would have to go a long way to turn some of those buyers into sellers. And when our risk management systems force us to sell, so do the risk management systems of the other 10,000. The price has to go a long way on the downside to bring new buyers into this market. The market is bigger, yet thinner. It is illiquid, difficult, and expensive to trade in. Size and diversity are related. You would expect a bigger market to have more diversity, but not necessarily so. And regulation can be used to promote diversity or not. And at the moment, it's not. Our current regulation pays more attention to legal notions of public, to, to legal notions of equity across individual institutions than to economic notions of public welfare. The mantra of our regulators, you've heard me say this before, is that we need common standards, they say, common standards across different types of institutions and risks, when in fact, what we need is the precise opposite. For better liquidity and the spreading of risk, we need institutions to be encouraged to have different approaches to risk that suit their different investment objectives. If instead, everyone is forced to sell an asset after it's fallen by a certain amount, irrespective of their investment horizons, who's left to buy? This is one of the reasons why the UK equity market has underperformed all other major markets. The pension and insurance companies in the UK have been forced sellers as a result of breaching their regulatory ratios and risk management systems. And as these institutions dominate the UK market more than almost any other, there have been few other market participants left out there to buy. Often diversity can be promoted by lightening the hand of regulation and allowing carefully selected parts of the financial system to lie outside normal regulation. I've spoken about this before, and so I don't wish to dwell further on that now. Now, having just endeared myself to those of you who always believe that less government meddling is a good thing, let me now lose your sympathy. Uh, the second proposal I would like to leave you with relates to how we may better support the flow of risk capital to small and medium enterprises. A key objective, I think, should be a key objective of government policy. A liquid, efficient, cheap exchange that provides price discovery, promotes disciplined, transparent risk-taking is a public good. And yet, they were invariably run by private companies seeking to maximize profits from a local monopoly position. Now, public goods are sometimes hard to imagine. As an example of a public good is London's public parks. Imagine that they were privatized and there was now an entrance fee. The problem with that is that the benefits of these parks extends to many people who don't go in them, who live and breathe around them. 
who watch from the outside. The private markets will always overcharge and undersupply public goods. Similarly, the owners of stock exchanges are concerned with earning as much rent from their monopoly as they can. And the key stakeholders of an exchange, the nation's investors, its borrowers, have marginal impact on how exchanges are run. That this should not be more regularly questioned is very odd to me. The ideal solution is that the license to manage the nation's exchange should be auctioned off by the financial regulator, with the winner receiving a subsidy in order to provide borrowers and investors with speedy, cheap, and reliable execution and settlement. The board of the licensing authority will consist of the main stakeholders of a good exchange, investors and borrowers, an exchange run by the buy side, not the sell side. Now, this sounds far-fetched today. But today, finance is in flux. Opportunities are there. And there's also an interesting precedent I'm sure few of you have heard about. In 1993, the Bombay Stock Exchange was an old, cozy club of dealers who managed exchange for their benefit. They had such a poor record for scandal and scam that a regulator decided to set up an alternative exchange. Its board was composed of all the stakeholders with a strong representation of investors. The focus was speedy, efficient settlement and investor protection. Listing was free. Compare that with the $100,000 plus listing costs in most major exchanges. Revenue came from a small standard transaction fee. The result was that in just one year, the new National Stock Exchange of India became the largest exchange in India, overcoming a monopoly of the BSC, which had been around for almost 100 years. In the process, this shows the daily turnover of the BSC and the National Stock Exchange. Look at the changeover in just one year, the, the black line. In the process, the BSC was forced to clean up its act, and the turnover of both exchanges grew strongly, attracting many foreign, much more foreign participation. This is one of the few examples in stock markets where the new upstart David has defeated Goliath. Let me summarize. There is a strong trend for the further consolidation of exchanges, driven in part by the current phase of deregulation, but powerfully also by the forces of technological progress and the pursuit of liquidity. It is very possible that this trend leads us in a few years' time to just one single global market. This will have far-reaching consequences. It will lead to a single global approach to corporate governance. It will lead to a further downplaying of country factors over corporate factors. It will improve the access of liquidity of large companies on a global exchange, but probably to the detriment of small companies left back home. Many of these developments are positive and to be welcomed. Some are more challenging. In particular, how to promote the flow of risk capital to those companies left on the less liquid local exchanges. However, regulators probably have more influence 
over these developments than they appreciate or currently exercise. They can boost the liquidity of local exchanges, even if they're small, by promoting diversity, diversity of behavior. They can also play a critical role in nurturing, perhaps even establishing, investor-driven exchanges to make sure that the public benefits of a broad and efficient national exchange are not lost in the pursuit of profit. I hope this provides sufficient food for thought. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.